People from uh, time to time do some awfully strange things that uh, probably explains the uh, current interest in people magazines and people television shows and those uh, sorts of things that show how, how strange and bizarre and, and odd people can be. And uh, I'm, I'm convinced that God's people can be the strangest of all. And if you want an illustration of that uh, observation, will you turn with me to the 27th chapter of Jeremiah? Jeremiah 27. Passage that's uh, full of uh, humor as well as, as uh, pathos. It was very unfunny to Jeremiah, but in, in reading the passage, you can pick up some of the uh, humor that, uh, that resides in it. Chapter 27. Early in the reign of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord said to me. Make a yoke out of straps and crossbars and put it on your neck. Then send word to the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon through the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. We're told that all of this happened early in the king in the reign of King Zedekiah, who was the last and uh, possibly the worst of Judah's kings. There was some skullduggery afoot. He uh, called a summit meeting of the neighboring states, envoys from the states of Edom and Moab and Tyre and, and Sidon, uh, in order to plot rebellion against the uh, king of Babel, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. The uh, Babylonian histories help us here. They tell us that just about this time, uh, there was a great deal of rebellion in the, uh, in the empire. A number of small states that had been subject to Nebuchadnezzar for years suddenly took this occasion to rebel, and he was busy putting out fires all over his, uh, his empire. And apparently Zedekiah took this opportunity to plot with some of the neighboring states uh, some grand rebellion against uh, the king on his own. So they gathered in Jerusalem in the palace, a sort of summit meeting of heads of state from, uh, from the, uh, that part of the, uh, of the Near East. And it was to this august group that Jeremiah presented himself with his yoke. Uh, the Lord told him to make a yoke out of wood. That's one of those awkward-looking uh, contrivances that they put on oxen and, and donkeys and make his way through the streets of Jerusalem and appear before these envoys and his own monarch, Zedekiah. It would be like uh, showing up at one of the salt talks in a clown suit or something like that. In my own mind, I can, uh, can envision Jeremiah making this contraption and then putting it on his back and walking through the streets of, of Jerusalem, through the shopping malls and down the escalator to uh, uh, Zedekiah's palace, uh, saying, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me. Finally, he gets down to, uh, to the palace, and he delivers this message. His yoke was actually the message. It was intended to signify what God had, had said to him. This, he says, is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, has said. Now, he speaks first to the envoys. Tell this to your masters, that is, the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon. With my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it. 
and I give it to anyone I please. Now I have handed over all of your countries to my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. Then, he, then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. He makes some very interesting uh, statements. I hope you paid attention as I read. In the first place, he, God says that he is a, the sovereign creator of the universe. He made the earth and he made all of the nations of the earth, the 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 population of the earth is the result of his creative activity and all of the animals. That's number one. Number two, he gives those lands and those people to whomever he wills. In this case, he says, I have given it to Nebuchadnezzar, whom he designates as my servant. It's very interesting. Nebuchadnezzar was a godless, arrogant man. We know that from Daniel. If he worshipped any gods at all, they were the gods of Babylon. And yet here he's described as my servant. Um, in, in the uh, book of, of Isaiah, Cyrus, the Persian king, who was not a worshiper of the God of Israel, is described in, in the same way. So God sets up certain men as he will. He puts down other men uh, as he will. He is the Lord of, of history. And uh, having Nebuchadnezzar, having served God's redemptive purposes, uh, would himself become, uh, his lands would become subject to other people. Now what you have in this passage is a theory of history. It's found not only here, but in other places of the Old Testament. And I would be willing to wager that none of you ever heard that theory of history in any of the uh, history classes that you, you took in high school or in college or on a graduate level. No one ever told you that uh, God is the organizing genius of history, that he's the one who puts certain men in positions of power and removes others and, and creates the events of, of history. Theories of history abound. You know, they're centered around great men or geography or economics or uh, uh, cultural movements of various types or class struggle. Uh, Henry Ford said, uh, history is bunk. Uh, Macbeth said that it's a tale told by an idiot and whatnot. There are all sorts of, of theories about history, but you, you rarely hear this one, that God is the sovereign Lord of history. History is his story. And for this particular period of history, God has, has decreed that Nebuchadnezzar will rule, and all nations will be subject to him. Now, uh, that ought to uh, relieve us when we listen to the evening news and we wonder what's happening uh, in, our, in our history. We need to understand that, uh, that uh, no one is running amok. God is not pacing the floor and biting his nails and wringing his hands and wondering what the outcome of the shift in power in the USSR is. Uh, will Chernenko uh, be, will he lean to the left or the right? Will he be amenable to some sort of uh, nuclear phase down? God's not uh, overwrought about that whole thing. He's in control. That's what sets us free from anxiety and fear. Now, that's not to say that we as, as Christians have no responsibility to be involved in, 
in the political process. That's, that's our responsibility as well. But this relieves us from anxiety and fear. We know who's in control. History is under God's tight and total control. And uh, he says to Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, to these envoys, this is the time for Nebuchadnezzar to rule. I've decreed this. And he goes on to say in verse 8, If, however, any nation or kingdom will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, or bow its neck under his yoke, I will punish that nation. He'll bring about national disaster and do so with sword, famine, and plague. That is, this is a reference to military invasion and in its aftermath. I will do so, he says, until I destroy it by his, by his hand. So don't listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your mediums or your sorcerers who tell you you will not serve the king of Babylon. They prophesy lies to you. They will only serve to remove you far from your lands. I will banish you and you will perish. But if any nation will bow its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let that nation remain in its own land to till it and to live there, declares the Lord. Interesting. If you submit, he says, you will not be further humiliated. But if you rise up in rebellion, you'll be deported and scattered, and your lands will lie fallow, and uh, your nation will, uh, will be destroyed. As far as we know, the five envoys went back to their kings and delivered this message, and they, uh, they, they listened and obeyed. And Nebuchadnezzar did not deport any of the people from these uh, border states. Then in verse 12... Jeremiah gives the same message to Zedekiah. That's his king, the king of Judah. Bow your neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, serve him and his people, and you will live. Why will you and your people die by the sword, famine, and plague with which the Lord has threatened any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Don't listen to the words of the prophets who say to you, you, uh, you will never serve the king of Babylon. For they are prophesying lies to you. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. They are prophesying lies in my name. They say they come from me, but they don't. Therefore, I will banish you, and you will perish, both you and the prophets who prophesy to you. It's essentially the same message as Zedekiah. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, or you will be further humiliated. We know historically that Zedekiah paid no attention to Jeremiah. He went on plotting rebellion. Uh, about eight years later, Nebuchadnezzar had had enough of the scheming, conniving man who was a puppet king to begin with, and uh, he blinded him, dragged him off to Babylon in chains, and, and there he died. That's the sad uh, uh, ending to this, uh, to this tale. Zedekiah didn't listen. So then Jeremiah addresses himself to the priests and to the people. Same message. This is what the Lord says. Don't listen to the prophets who say, Very soon now the articles... From the Lord's house will be brought back from Babylon. Some three years before, in 597, Nebuchadnezzar had made uh, a, a kind of a, a peremptory raid on, on uh, the city of Jerusalem. He had stripped uh, the temple of some of its treasures, taken them off to, to Babylon. And uh, the prophets were saying, very soon these articles will be brought back. But Jeremiah says, they're liars. They're prophesying lies to you. Don't listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and you will live. Why should this city become a ruin? It was not God's uh, plan for the city of Jerusalem to be destroyed. It would, only, uh, it would only fall if they rebelled. Don't uh, listen to them, he says. If they are prophets and have the word of the Lord, let them plead with the Lord Almighty. 
that the furnishings remaining in the house of the Lord and in the palace of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem not be taken to Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says about the pillars. These were the big, uh, the tall bronze pillars that stood at the entrance of the temple. And the sea, which was the bronze uh, wash basin that was used in the in the temple, and the movable stands or the movable uh, carts that were used within the temple complex, and the other furnishings that are left, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take away when he carried Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, along with all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. This had happened just three years before. And uh, Jeremiah pleads with them to pray that God might spare what was left of the furnishings and utensils in the, uh, in the temple. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about the things that are left. If you rebel, they will be taken to Babylon, and there they will remain until the day I come for them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. The uh, people didn't listen either, and eight years later, in 586, 587, Nebuchadnezzar invaded the city. They, they underwent a terrible siege. People died by the scores, by the thousands, starved to death. They, uh, eventually the city was broken into and Jerusalem was burned to the ground. The city was, uh, the, the temple was sacked and burned and only a blackened shell was left. And all the rest of the people, other than the very, very poor, were deported off into, into Babylon. This came just eight years after Jeremiah made this uh, prediction. Had they submitted to Babylon and been willing to take on their own necks the, the yoke that God had imposed, they would have been spared, but uh, they wouldn't, and they, they suffered the terrible consequences of their disobedience. Now, we know this from our historical perspective, but Jeremiah did not, and neither did the people. He was predicting all of these uh, events, and they thought he must certainly be wrong. This is God's house. These are God's people. This is God's appointed king. He's uh, politically astute. Uh, how can you say that, that Jerusalem will fall? It's, it's incredible. No one would believe that. You're wrong, Jeremiah. And usually when someone is wrong, there's always someone around to point out how wrong they are. And that's what uh, you have in chapter 28, the story of Hananiah. This is the heart of this section. In the fifth month of that same year, the fourth year, in the 594 B.C., early in the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, the prophet Hananiah, son of Azar, who was from Gibeon, said to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people. This was a public confrontation. We do not know who this man Hananiah was other than uh, what we learned from this, this chapter. Hananiah is a very popular name, a Hebrew name. There are a number of men in the Old Testament who bore that name, but uh, this one is different from any of the others, and we only know about him what we discover from this passage. He was a would-be prophet, a false prophet in the court of Zedekiah, and uh, he gives his own version of God's uh, will for Israel. It follows in verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. One, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Two, within two years, I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. That's, uh, he's referring to those articles that Jeremiah says in chapter 27 
will be taken to Jerusalem and returned when God's time comes. Uh, Three, I will also bring back to this place Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Uh, There are a series of direct contradictions here. He's in direct conflict with Jeremiah and his predictions. Back in chapter 25, Jeremiah had, had predicted that 70 years of captivity were decreed upon Judah. Since we didn't look at that chapter, uh, would you turn there with me, please? Chapter 25, verse 8. Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north, and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones, and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, there's a reason for that 70-year captivity. One of the uh, one aspect of the law had to do with the land. The, the, uh, the, their fields were not to be tilled on the seventh year. For six years they could work their fields. The seventh year they were to lie fallow. It's a good reason for that. And for almost 500 years they had failed to obey that particular tenet in the law. And so God says, you know, in effect, He says everybody deserves rest. Everything deserves rest. Even the land deserves rest. So uh, we're going to give the land the 70-year vacation that it's that it's uh, that's that's appropriate. That's right. And that's why 70 years were decreed, a specific figure, 70 years of captivity. That's what Jeremiah had said, God had said. Hananiah says, no, not 70, two, two years. In two years, you'll return from exile, and all of the furnishings of the temple will be returned. Actually, the the Hebrew phrase, phrase is two years of days. That is exactly two years of 360 days each or 720 days. Within 720 days, the articles of furniture and Jehoiachin and all of the exiles will be returned. Now, that's the first point of conflict. The second has to do with Jehoiachin. If you notice back in uh, chapter 28 again, he says, I will also bring back to this place Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and all the other, other exiles. Jehoiachin had been taken... Uh, three years before, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar had besieged the city, taken off into captivity, he was now receiving uh, some royal favor, and uh, since he was a legitimate son of David, an heir to the throne, and still considered in Palestine, in Israel, as the king of Judah, uh, they were hopeful for his return. And uh, Hananiah says, in two years, Jehoiachin is, is going to come back, and he'll be the king. And again, that's in direct conflict with what Jeremiah had had predicted. Turn back to chapter 22. Again, this is a passage that we did not discuss. Verse 28, Jeremiah 22, 28. Is not this man Jehoiachin a despised, broken pot, an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land they do not know? 
O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless. Jehoiachin had seven sons, and yet God says, uh, as a matter of, of historical fact, it's as though he had no sons. If you conducted a census, you should write him down as childless, because uh, none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. That was Jeremiah's prediction. This man Jehoiachin will never rule, and none of his descendants will ever rule. Now, just as a, an incidental fact, this is one of the reasons why Jesus had to be virgin-born. This is why Joseph could not be his natural father, because Joseph was in the lineage of Jehoiachin. If you look at the genealogy in Matthew 1 that traces Jesus' line from David down to Jesus himself, it runs directly through the line of Jehoiachin. That line was cursed. It was set aside. Jeremiah said, not one descendant of Jehoiachin will ever sit on the throne. And had Joseph been Jesus' natural father, biological father, then Jesus would have had no right to sit on the throne of Israel. Jesus' authority came through Mary's line. If you look at the genealogy in, in the book of Luke, it's traced through, not through Solomon and the line of kings that sat on the throne of Judah, but through Nathan, who was Solomon's brother. Nathan was a son of David, just as Solomon was. But the line breaks off at that point, and he goes down through Nathan to Mary. And that particular line was not set aside. It wasn't cursed. And since Jesus was the natural descendant of, of Mary, he gained his right to rule through her. Now, that's just uh, an aside, but uh, uh, it reminds us again that God is in control of, of history. Things happen for a reason. Going back to Jeremiah's time, he had predicted that Jehoiachin would be set aside and all of his descendants. But uh, Hananiah says, no, no, Jehoiachin's coming back, and he'll rule. And uh, all the exiles will come back, and uh, all of the uh, articles of furniture from the temple will be restored, and the yoke of Babylon will be broken for all nations. In other words, Babylon as an empire will fall. So in verse 5, we're told that uh, Jeremiah replied to the prophet Hananiah, and he said, Amen. So be it. May the Lord do so. I hope you're right. Jeremiah was a patriot. He loved his country. He hoped that Hananiah was uh, speaking the truth. May the Lord fulfill the word you have prophesied by, by bringing the articles of the Lord's house and all the exiles back to this place from Babylon. Nevertheless, listen to what I have to say in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. From early times, the prophets who preceded you and me have prophesied war and disaster and plague against many countries and, and great kingdoms, but the prophet who prophesies peace will be recognized as one truly sent by the Lord only if his prediction comes true. Uh, Jeremiah says, this is something new. Oh my, he says, I, I hope you're right. I, as a matter of fact, I get the impression that Jeremiah was inwardly troubled by, by Hananiah's confidence. He was so sure of himself. And he said what he said with so much authority that Jeremiah was disturbed. Jeremiah was still fairly young. And he said, I don't Maybe I got the word wrong. 
Maybe I misunderstood what God said. I hope you're right, Hananiah. This is something new. We haven't heard this from the prophets before because all of the prophets uh, up until that time had prophesied doom and gloom uh, for Judah. Not that that was their only message. There was also a message of, of hope. But for this particular period of time to an unrepentant people, the prophets had, said, had, had spoken only of judgment. And if God is going to avert judgment on Judah, that's a new message. That's something new. And, and maybe you're right, and I hope you are, but we've got to wait and see if your predictions come true. Because that's the way a prophet was authenticated. Now, Jeremiah was thinking in his mind of something that Moses had taught the people years before. And uh, that's contained in our Bibles in Deuteronomy 18. Will you turn back there with me, please? This uh, will not be new to most of you, but we have so many new people here uh, that for whom this may be new, I'd like to uh, refresh all of our minds of, of this teaching about the, the way to tell a prophet, the way to discern between a true and a false uh, prophet. That's always the question. How, how do you know when somebody is from God? Anyone can stand up here and say, I, I have a message from God. I, I saw God last night. Jesus appeared to me. And he said uh, thus and so. And we say, Maybe he's right. How do you know? Well, Moses gave us some criteria, some standards, some canons to use to test the word of a prophet. And they're contained here in Deuteronomy 18. Israel had come up on the plains of Moab, across the Jordan from the promised land, and they needed instruction about what they would, uh, what they would find when they went into the land, and this is a part of that, uh, that teaching. Verse 14, Deuteronomy 18, 14. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. In other words, you won't get your information from the stars or from looking at animal livers or from tarot cards or from Ouija boards or palm readers or tea uh, leaf readers or uh, people who count the knots on your head or, or any of those sorts of things. You won't get your information about the future and about your destiny by discovery, but it'll come by disclosure. God himself will tell you. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. Oh, he, he has to be a Jew. He has to be an Israelite. Uh, in case there's any question about the meaning of this phrase, in the chapter before, in chapter 17... In the laws concerning the king, one, one standard for a king, one, one uh, criterion they had to apply for choosing a king, was that he, he had to be one of your brothers, not a foreigner. That phrase is there to explain the meaning of, of brother. So a legitimate prophet, an authentic prophet, had to be an Israelite. Paul says the same thing in Romans 3, in, in listing the... the uh, blessings of, of Israel. He says one of them is that to them were given the oracles of God. God chose one group of people, and through that group of people, he revealed himself. So it had to be a Jew who received direct revelation. He didn't get his information from the newscasts or from uh, the editorials or from the stars, but he received direct revelation from God. 
I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. And then in verse 21, recognizing that they're going to encounter some, some Israelites who say, we heard from God last night, we had a revelation, how can we further test that revelation? Moses says, if, this is in verse 22, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message that the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Don't be in awe of him. Don't respect his, uh, his pronouncement. It does not come from God. So those are the tests. They're threefold. He must be an Israelite who receives direct revelation, not through discovery, but through disclosure, and he must be able to predict the future with absolute accuracy. He must never miss. He must bat 1,000. And uh, historically, as you read through the Bible, that's precisely what you see the prophets doing, not only giving long-range prophecies, predicting things that happened after their death, but short-term prophecies to authenticate their authority, to validate themselves as prophets. They would prophesy some event was coming up, and it would be a very precise prediction, and the thing would happen. It wasn't a general prediction, like playing golf on a golf course where all the holes, where all the green sloped toward the holes. You know, you can hardly ever miss. It had to be very, very specific. Now, this is what was in Jeremiah's mind when Hananiah produces a new prophecy. He says, this is, this is something new. All right, you're an Israelite. You say you speak in the name of the Lord. This was a direct revelation to you. Now let's see if your prediction comes true. So Hananiah, let's go back to Jeremiah now, Jeremiah 28. <clears throat> in order to underscore his prediction, took the yoke, I'm reading verse 10, took the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah and broke it. Took the wooden yoke off of, you know, pulled the thing off of his head and broke it over his knee, and threw it, to the, threw it to the ground, and he said, before all the people, public uh, demonstration of his authority, this is what the Lord says, in the same way will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, off the neck of all the nations within two years. At this, the prophet Jeremiah went on his way. I think he was really taken aback. That's not the way I heard it. But uh, Hananiah said what he had to say with such force and finality that Jeremiah was just blown away. It's not, I don't think that's what's going to happen. But you know, maybe I got the message wrong. I better go back and check. Shortly after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Go and tell Hananiah, this is what the Lord says, You have broken a wooden yoke, but in its place you will get a yoke of iron. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, I will put an iron yoke on the necks of all these nations to make them serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. I will even give him control over the wild animals. Now, I don't know if Jeremiah made a yoke out of iron or not. I hope he did. And uh, wore that thing through the streets thinking, you know, if, if he... Brings this thing down over his knee. I know it will break this time. And uh, he appeared before Hananiah, and he puts this big iron yoke down, and he says, Hananiah, God appeared to me last night, and he said that he's going to put an iron yoke on the neck of Israel. You must submit. This is God's final word on the subject. And so you will know 
that I am a prophet. Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, The Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This very year you're going to die because you have preached rebellion against the Lord. Now there's Jeremiah's short-range prediction. Now the lines are drawn. It's kind of a classic good guy, bad guy shootout. You know, high noon, uh, middle of the street sort of thing. Prophet Hananiah, Prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, in two years, 720 days, Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom will fall, and the articles of the temple and Jehoiachin and all of the exiles will be brought back to uh, Jerusalem. And on that I stand. Two years. Jeremiah says, no, Hananiah, you're wrong. You're to submit to the iron yoke that Nebuchadnezzar will put on your back, and it'll be 70 years, not two years, and Jehoiachin is going to die in Babylon, not come back and reign as king, and most of the exiles will die in Babylon. And as for you, not only are you dead wrong, you're dead. <laughs> One year. And you can imagine the tension that created in, in Jerusalem. Hannah and I would go jogging through the streets of Jerusalem. And uh, someone would stop him and say, how are you feeling? <laughs> feeling great. Couldn't feel better. Pulse rate's down to 55. Blood pressure's down. Feeling terrific. And uh, two months later, uh, I'm, I'm reading between the lines, Hananiah is jogging through the streets of Jerusalem, and bang, over he goes. And everybody says, man, what a lucky shot. How did Jeremiah guess that one? No, they didn't say that. They, they knew exactly what was up. They knew that Jeremiah was a prophet. There was a hushed and awed silence in the city of Jerusalem, believe me. Uh, my, our son Brian played basketball for Capital, and in the some of you may remember, I think it was four years ago, in the state championship game between Boise and, and Capital, some Capital, some Boise player, uh, in the last three seconds of the game, made a jump shot from about 25 feet out and swished it, and they won by one point. And everybody was saying, "Man, what a lucky shot!" But if you were at the game, you know the guy was making those shots all all evening. What a lucky shot! He went through because that's where he aimed it. And, uh, of course, the only difference between him and Jeremiah is that Jeremiah never missed. And here's another illustration of it. One year, Hananiah, two months later, he was dead. And that's why Jeremiah's book is in the Bible and Hananiah's is not. Every book in the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, was written by a Jew who received direct revelation and who predicted the future with 100% accuracy, never missed, or was written under the authority of a Jew who predicted the future with 100% accuracy. That's how our Bible came to be compiled. God spoke to these men, and they spoke, and they predicted the future. You see, they're called prophets, not because uh, their major task was to predict the future. We, we tend to think of prophecy that way. 
It's all future-oriented. They were basically preachers to their contemporaries. But they predicted the future as a way of authenticating their message. They came from God. And that was the way of proving it. Now, the same thing is true today. As far as I read the scripture, I, I can't see any unequivocal statement in either the Old or New Testament that, that prophetism ceased when the New Testament canon was closed, when the collection of scripture that we call the New Testament was closed. There's a statement in the book of Revelation to the effect that we're not to add to the words of that book, but I think that applies specifically to the book of Revelation. And as a matter of fact, the book of Revelation in chapter 11 says that there will be two prophets who will arise in the latter ages who will make predictions. They will be Jews who receive direct revelation and predict the future with 100% accuracy. So I, I can't say that prophetism has ceased. All I'm saying is that if somebody comes to your door and they knock, 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 and they say, I, I just heard from a prophet, and uh, my prophet said thus and so, and you stop and think, now wait a minute, that modifies the message of the New Testament and the Old Testament to some degree. Your attitude ought to be, well, maybe, maybe. Let's wait and see. And if, if you fulfill the criteria, then I'll, I'll listen to you. And if you don't, then I don't have to be in awe of you. Uh, John says in his little book, test the spirits. It's not a failure of faith to be, to be thoughtful about these things. It's a matter of being wise and shrewd. I don't care who comes to your door, some guru or philosopher or educator or social scientist or economist or theologian or cultist or, or whatever. If they come knocking on your door and they tell you something that's contrary to what you find already written, spoken and written by the prophets, then your attitude ought to be, maybe, maybe, we'll wait and see. Don't be gullible. Don't be naive. Test the spirits. That's a mark of maturity. Now, I was fishing in the Boise River here right at the tail end of the season last fall and just below Glenwood Bridge. And uh, this fellow yelled at me from the bank. Hey, he says, and I, I looked up, and there was a fish and game official. Uh, there's something about me. I... I have had more game wardens check my fishing license in the last year, I'll bet, than any of you. Uh, I think Carolyn thinks it's either that I fish too much or I look like a poacher, one or the other. But I, I'm always being inspected. Just have that desperate look, I guess. And anyway, he, he was across the channel from me over on the bank, about as far as from here to that exit sign. And he says, how's the fishing? They're always real nice, you know. How's the fishing? Not, not real good. Nice weather, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Got a license? Uh, yeah, yeah. Can I see it? And I thought, well, this is going to be good. He, he was across the channel. <laughs> and I wasn't just about to wade because it was over the top of my waders. And uh, I didn't think he was going to wade because he had this nicely pressed green suit on. And so I started rummaging around in my vest trying to find my fishing license. You never can find it, you know, when I pulled out old ends of liters and a, a week-old peanut butter sandwich or something. And finally got the thing out, and, and it was Carolyn's. It wasn't mine. And I, I looked at it, and I thought, well, he won't know the difference. Uh, well, I better show him mine. So I, I finally found mine, and I held it up. And you know what he did? He reached behind, and he got out this great big pair of binoculars. And I thought, oh, 
He could have read my thumbprints with those. <laughs> Let me say that's the kind of attitude we ought to have toward toward people. You know, scope them out. Don't take their word for anything. I don't care how much authority they have. I don't care what credentials they have, how intelligent they sound, what sort of degrees they come to you with. If they don't bear apostolic prophetic credentials, we don't have to listen to them. Now you can learn from people. You know, even non-Christians, they have a lot to teach us. Jesus said that that the people uh, out in secular society often are wiser and smarter than the sons of of God. So certainly in the Bible is not the sum total of truth. There's truth outside the Bible. So we can learn. We need to be open and teachable from all sources. But when somebody says something that's contrary to the word of God, we we can say, "Uh uh-uh, nope. No, that's, that's not so. Or... When somebody comes to you as, an, as a prophet and they say, we have a modified form of the gospel that we'd like to present because God appeared to us, you can say, I don't think so. don't think so. Let's wait and see. If you fulfill the criteria, then I'll listen to you. But until you do, I don't have to fear you. Maybe I need to love that person and, and bring him into the kingdom because they may be totally deceived by the false prophet that, that, that they're following. And I certainly shouldn't be rude and unkind to them, but I don't have to fear them because they're not from God. Let me say by way of final application, read your Bibles. The the word inside, as John Fisher says, is true and reliable. That's where we get our information about life and how to live it, how to be the kind of people that God wants us to be. And and it's really very foolish to go through life and listen to what all all of secular society says and, and ignore this book. Read your Bibles. And uh, may I encourage you into some kind of organized uh, approach to Bible study. Don't just come on Sunday morning and, and listen. Get into a small group, into a growth group, preferably. If that doesn't work for you, into the women's, one of the women's classes or the men's classes where, where you'll be accountable to someone. who They'll encourage you into the scriptures, explain some of the questions that you have, and, and help you on to God. We don't worship this book. We worship God, but this is the book that tells us about God. It's true. It's reliable. And uh, we, we neglect it to our own peril. Let's pray. Father, the world is, uh, is full of people who are telling us things that sound so good and uh, seem to work, at least for the short term, but which in, in the end are, are not true. And we have so many... Uh, so many hard lessons to look back on that, that teach us that, that that's so. So remind us, Lord, when we, we hear something new, to be wise and astute and uh, to subject what anyone says to the kind of critical analysis that we've, that we've discussed this morning and, and to be like Jeremiah, to, to wait for the marks of a true prophet. Help us, Lord, to be students of the word, to love it, to read it, to memorize it, to meditate upon it, to obey it, to be subject to it, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.